Thank you to everyone who filled out that survey I asked you to take a few weeks back. The turnout was awesome, and for that I am forever grateful. But now I am back to ask you for another favor. If you like this show, please subscribe and rate and review wherever you download podcasts. It only takes a second, and it really does help. So far, surprisingly few of you have taken me up on my offer to have sex with you and or commit a contract murder on your behalf in exchange for these favors you are doing for me. But FYI, my offer still stands, so don't be shy. And don't forget, subscribe to The Tully Show, then rate and review. Subscribe, rate, and review. Subscribe, rate, and review. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for the first ever Tully Show contest. That's right, contest. But first, pay close attention to the show for the clue you will need to win a special one-of-a-kind prize. That's right, one-of-a-kind prize. Free shit you will not get anywhere else at the conclusion of this week's Tully Show. And now here we go. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, the ultimate heavy metal insider and the go-to authority for all things hard rock, the host of Trunk Nation, airing live weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Channel 106, Volume. Hello. Nice to see you again, Eddie Trunk. You too, Mike. Good to see you, man. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Los Angeles. Yeah, it's always great to do shows from here. How much time do you uh, like? You're you seem like a consummately East Coast kind of guy. Do, have you fa- have you found your West Coast stride? Having been out here many, many, many times, I know. I like it here a lot. I I've often said that if I was faced with the prospect of having to move for a job, this would be one place I would consider doing it for. I mean. The weather, which obviously everybody talks about, is amazing. The, the the negative, of course, is the the price and the congestion. But as I get older and I come out here more and more, I first started coming here in like the mid '80s. I really do like it. There's, it's, I mean, what's not to like? But um, yeah, I'm an East Coast lifer. I think, although I want to get out of. Uh, I lived in New, I live in New Jersey and have my whole life just outside of New York City and I absolutely I said to my wife I said we I, I want it when the kids are out of school my kids are in elementary school when they're done got to get out of Jersey it's just it's very congested it's very expensive with taxes where mm-hmm. I live and I'm just like I'm over it and yeah. with today's technology yes. if you're doing radio you can do it from anywhere. Yeah, we're not too far off from you could be doing Trunk Nation from from France if that's what you really chose to well, do. Well, I your did life. it from a cruise ship. Without a problem for ten days, you don't even need to be landlocked. No, I actually did. I did my show on volume for ten days from a Monsters of Rock cruise and then a, a cruise to the edge, a Prague cruise, and I didn't have an issue. Were you live? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, live from the, they got me the the internet connection I needed, and yeah. I'm going to do it again in January. Yeah, we got to we got to get out of this office high rise. <laughs> There's no reason for us to be here. So you've been traveling out to L.A. since the mid '80s. How did I want to do a little bit of background on you? Yeah. How how did you get started in all of this? Because my first exposure to you, if I remember correctly, was you were a member of the on air staff at Z Rock. No. 
Were you not? Uh, I never worked at Xerox. I could have sworn in my that mind. Was in Dallas, right? No, wasn't Xerox the um, the uh, the AM heavy metal station in New York? There may have been. It was more of a simulcast, I think, at one okay. point. That's but where I, I heard never you. had anything to do with that, and I never worked there. No, my my history is that I have always been a huge rock and hard rock fan. In high school, it was my passion. I quickly the reader's digest version is i quickly went on this quest to do anything and everything i could to help share this music that i loved with other people i hated the fact that it was marginalized i was made fun of for liking it and i said i'm going to try to share this music and spread it in a respectful way to this day i hate the stereotypes that come with metal music and hard rock music so i said i'm going to try to give it the right put the right polish on it and help support these bands so right out of high school i was doing radio. I made my radio demo tape on a pirate radio station. I started in radio right out of high school with what was considered to be in 1983 one of the first ever metal radio shows on a station in Jersey, WDHA, which is still there to this day. That's where I started. And uh, did radio as I do still currently, eight shows a week I'm doing right now. And beyond, above and beyond radio, I worked in a record store. So I was selling music to people. I'm on the radio. I'm playing music for people, doing freelance writing. I'm writing and reviewing music to share with people. How close did you get to playing and making music? I never was a musician. I mean, when I was young, I took some drum lessons, didn't stay with it, didn't have the discipline, bailed on it very quickly. So I knew I wasn't going to be a musician, but I was like, I'm going to do as much as I can in this business. So it was just accumulating as much experience as I could. At uh, 22, I became vice president of Megaforce Records, the label that signed Metallica. So I worked behind the scenes as an A&R and a label guy, signed Ace Freely. I was a big Kiss fan. He was my first signing. King's X, I worked with a lot of bands like that. So I had all this wealth of experience in all these different areas, and I just was consumed with music. I didn't know that you had a background with uh, with a record label. Yeah. Um, so it was... It was years ago. I mean, I, I've been sure. out of that since around 91, but it was an important part of my life. Well, I guess I was always kind of curious about how you cracked in and got inched towards the position that you're in now. I can see where you, you have that the enough relationships and enough credibility from having been in the business that that lends itself to it gives you a bit of a jogging start into broadcast and and music journalism yeah i mean i i was uh when i started in radio i was 18 19 and i didn't the only experience i had i had no real radio experience i made this demo tape on a pirate radio station a friend of mine was into radio at the time he was the manager of the record store that I was working in. He was into radio for a different reason. He was into big voices and talking up to the post and top 40 sort of stuff. And I wasn't. There was no appeal to me about radio except for a chance to communicate and play the bands I love. Again, a way to share the bands. And I expressed this to him, and he took me to his house one day on Staten Island, and he showed me this, what I'd never even heard of a pirate radio station. And he had it in his basement, and we would go down there every once in a while, turn the transmitter on on weekends, and we would do a radio show. And it had a great signal, and it sounded great. And this is pre-cell phone, so we used to give out a request number, which was the payphone on the corner, send another guy there, he'd answer the phone, hang up like it was a studio, <laughs> call back to us and tell us what song to play. And that's where what, I made my demo tape. What is your sense of what the listenership of this would have been? Well, the pro it would have been pretty good, except for the fact that we couldn't leave it on very long because you had a better chance of getting caught. I mean, mm -hmm. running an, an, a, 
a pirate radio station, especially back then, it's a big deal with the FCC. You could yeah. you could get in trouble. So, and I remember occasionally in my youth, because I grew up in New Jersey as well. I think once or twice the guys did do the thing where they were out on a boat and yeah. they're in international waters. So yeah, totally. you, and pretty much until they run out of food or drugs, like yeah. they're they, you know they're just going to be broadcasting, and they just know we'll get arrested when we go back in. Yeah, we were we would turn it on for. I only did it a few times, but we would fire it up maybe for two or three hours on a Saturday or Sunday night. And the only way people would find it is if they just happened to be dial surfing and come right. across it. We couldn't advertise it very in any way. Mm -hmm. So it was just a fun thing, and they, it never got caught. I, don't, I have no idea what happened to the actual equipment, but it was enough to pique my interest, and, and it was the way that I made my demo. And I remember when, as a kid, sending it to, to DHA, and the program director was like, what are the call letters? I never even heard of this station. These call letters you're giving out. Station legally didn't exist. That's a great. That's a great calling card to have. So was uh, do I have this correct? Was Kiss your first love? Yeah. Well, well, the the first thing that really consumed me. There was a power pop band called the Raspberries that I absolutely was the first time I really heard rock music, and I remember that very first experience very well. But the the first band that. I just consumed, and I probably became most identified with his kiss. So, uh, Eric Carmen is that his name? Eric Carmen was the Raspberries. Yeah, yeah. Later, people know yeah. him from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. this was this was more rock power pop. Oh, I know. Music. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they go all the way. Was in yeah. uh, the uh, first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, yeah. and I was like, one of those songs. I think ever since Quentin Tarantino made it cool to put obscure, you know, th I go, when is somebody going to get that Raspberry song? Because it's it's one. It's like a classic song that a lot of people don't know, but they will all love it as soon as they hear it. And I, I, maybe that song is more well known than I realize, but I feel like it's sort of lost to the mists of history. Well, it's their biggest hit by far, but yeah. it, it it they didn't have many big hits, but that particular song was absolutely what I identify to be as the very first time I heard rock music. I heard those big distorted power chords. I was a little kid in the back of my parents' car, AM radio, and the hair stood up on my arms if I had hair at the time. Right, right. And it was like, to the, it, was a, it was a very, very moving, huge, huge moment in my life. So I became a fan of that band as a little kid. But then one day I flipped through the bins and I saw a copy of Kiss Destroyer and it was like game over. Right. And there are a lot of people, you're a little bit older than me, who have that same experience. Your friend Sebastian Bach has that experience. I think every Everyone in Skid Row just about had that experience. Yeah. Do you feel like, and I don't know, you know, who you have relationships with that you may need to tread lightly. Do you feel like Kiss's music holds up? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm very outspoken about Kiss to the point that Paul Stanley won't talk to me anymore. I consider that and, a badge of honor. And it, yeah, and well, I'm in a, in, a, in a very esteemed group. <laughs> <laughs> because if you have an opinion other than what he wants you to be in line with at any at that given day, you're cast out. Mm -hmm. That's different if you have a differing opinion, and I do, about what Kiss is now. But uh, the irony of that is he was always my favorite member of the band, and I, I was just speaking to Sebastian. I was at Sebastian's house yesterday, and we're cranking Paul's 78 solo record and having a party. It was, a, it was a blast. But, um, no, I'm very objective and honest about all the things, whether and let the, the chips fall where they may for saying it, but I do think Kiss's music holds up some of it incredibly well. I mean, especially I can say that with all confidence. After last night, I was at Sebastian's house, and we were cranking the first record and all this, all this early 70s stuff, and we had a blast. And so I really, really, truly... My, I always loved Kiss most for the music and the songs. I believe you. The, the the show and the costumes, and I was never a collector. I never got the merch. I never dressed up. It was always, to me, about loving the records and loving what Kiss stood for. Did they make some bad records and have some bad songs? Absolutely. But they the the core of their work, their classic work, I think, is, is great. Because my Kiss is... 
is Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. And I love Motley Crue. I've, I, I, I never thought I would find it so hard to listen to Motley Crue. I think the first two albums are incredible. Agreed. They're and, best. And, uh, and, and the demos for Shout at the Devil were five more songs that were better than almost anything on Theater of Pain. And it kind of just goes uh, downhill from there. And it's 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 funny how I guess when you were a kid, you I I, and I was into Motley Crue for the music as well. I wasn't there because of the spinning drum kit or anything like right. that. But I must have been so overwhelmed by the aura that they had and the showmanship and the package and the videos and stuff because there is a you know I I I know uh, Nikki Six. I think pretty famously told Vince Neil when they made Dr. Feelgood, we need to make an actual album this time. And Vince said, well, we've been making albums. And he said, no, those last two albums were maybe one album put together. Right. Because it was pretty. Uh, so, right. well, well, I'm glad that you still enjoy the band that you idolized. In, yeah. In your well, youth. Yeah. And, you know, it's weird for me because I am older than you. And, and for me, I say all the time, I the bands that really, really move me still are the bands I grew up with in the 70s when I was a little kid. The bands of the 80s I look at in a little different way. I'm still a huge fan, but a lot of those guys are friends, and we came up in the business together. So when they were making their first records, I was just starting in radio, so I was one of their first interviews, and we, we, we've we we've come up together. So I look at them differently on, on a different level, uh, not to say I I don't respect them and and their music any less, but I just look at them as differently as the, as the, instead of the, versus the band that when I'm a kid in my room, I had the Aerosmith and the Kiss posters on the wall. That's the sacred ground to me. Yeah, you can't put the the people that you know as human beings up on a pedestal. Yeah, it's it's a little different. But when going back to Motley, I agree with you fully about what you said about their records. I think the first two, I think the first record's my favorite, yes. followed by Shout. Yes, and then Theater of Pain is actually a really bad record outside of a song or two. I think it's pretty amazing. I like Home Sweet Home. I think there's a lot of people yeah, who don't the, feel that way. I I love. But what, what, is there another song? Well, the, the other single was the cover of "Smoking in the Boys Room," which is not aged well. And then um, uh, uh, "Louder Than Hell" is fine because it was hotter. Than hell when it was going to be on Shout of the Devil, right? And and I think that the thing with Motley that played into they them becoming so erratic so quick is probably with the success that came, the drugs came, and the it's kind of kind of went off the rails a little bit. Yeah, yeah, not a little bit, a lot. Yeah, sure. Uh, when did you uh, when did you realize that this is the thing you were going to be doing for your whole professional life? Oh man. Um... I was awful in school, uh, not not because I wasn't smart, but I just didn't apply myself because I wasn't interested in anything but music. And my parents would always tell me when I would chase these things, like I'm going to be a ra- I'm going to be on the radio, or I'm going to do this. They would always say, "Well, fine, but have a backup plan because you don't know and this and that." And that always, to this day, still is after after 35 years in this business, that still resonates. And I still think, "Oh man, I hope I." Have a backup plan. Oh, you'd be putting up drywall. Uh, worst yeah, case scenario. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've done all those sort of jobs working mm-hmm. in stores and stuff. But at fifty-three, thankfully, I've done enough and done well enough that I think that God forbid, if everything bottomed out tomorrow, I'd find a way to eke out the rest of my life. A little bit different dynamic when you have kids, and I have two kids that I, I, I have to take care of a family, and and that's a, an added layer of pressure and expense. So I work harder than ever because of that. But I guess the moment where I felt kind of like secure to some degree was when I moved from doing radio. Well, I did radio in New Jersey from 83 till 94. 
And I did it at DHA, which is a media market radio station, suburban radio station in New Jersey, a station I grew up listening to. So it was, a, it was a huge thrill for me to work there all those years. And that's where I developed this metal show that I do on Terrestrial still to this day. And I, I all the years working at DHA, I always had other jobs. And most, most people who are jocks in small to medium markets have to or do. So I would work at the record store and then go work at the radio station because you just didn't make that much money. It was you have to hustle. When I moved from doing radio in New Jersey and got my first on-air gig in, in New York City, I never was prepared for the change that that meant because I was not, remember, I didn't, there's people that get into radio and they work in 15 different markets and their goal is to get to a top 10 market. And all. I, I was not that guy. Right. My whole thing was, I have this idea for this show I want to do. Where can I do it? Okay, I can do it at my local station. Great, I'm on the air. I didn't, I wasn't a driven, I've got to run up the ladder of radio. But I randomly, a station signed on in New York City in 1994 called Q1043 and it was called at that time the station's still on the air but at that time when it signed on it was called New York's Pure Rock right and it opened its programming and signed on by doing ACDC A to Z and I was like whoa what because for a long time I didn't feel there was radio worth anything in New York I didn't grow up a fan of New York City radio even though I was in the listening market no I I honestly think think I don't like classic rock because of New York radio yeah, more, I can honestly say that the bigger the market the more conservative and the more kind of dull it can be I, yeah quite frankly NEW and I, to my mind it was just stairway to heaven into uh, the Allman Brothers back into stairway to heaven yeah and for people that don't know what we're talking about listening outside of the New York area of course the the legendary rock stations in New York City where there was some legend legendary jocks, NEW, PLJ, but I was not into for the same reason. I was, I actually listened, like I said, to my local station, which is, was, which was DHA. And that's the station I ended up working on. So I never had this great quest to go into New York radio uh, because there was nothing that, there that really appealed to me all that much. And I didn't even understand the difference in market size and reach by doing that. So I randomly, when this station signed on, I'll never forget it. Back that was the days of cassettes, and I dropped a what's called a skimmer in radio, which is a cassette machine at the time that would record only when you turn the mic on. So you record your breaks. So I threw a cassette in the skimmer, and I dropped it in the mail, and I sent it to Q104, and I just put like attention program director. I said, hey, you know, like what you guys are doing. If there's any interest, I never expected to hear a word about it. And a couple weeks later, my phone rang. I mean, I really didn't put much into it. It was just like didn't craft it or edit it. I just, here's a couple breaks. And they called me up and they said, hey, why don't you come in? So I was like, whoa. So I drove into New York and went into the city and I met with the uh, music director at the time, an assistant program director, a guy named Vinnie Marino. We sat and we talked and he said, we like your tape. The program director uh, is a guy named Ron Valeri who programs AAF in Boston now. He was the PD at the time. And they said, we, we want to offer you seven to midnight on Sundays. And I was like, well, you know, I'm at DHA and I'm doing like four or five shifts at different times. I mean, I'm only getting one shift here. I don't know if I could do that. And then they said, well, it pays. And I think they said something like $252 a shift or $220 a shift. I almost fell off the chair. I said, for four hours? And they said, yeah. I said, DHA, I was making like 
$8 an hour. <laughs> I and couldn't I, tell if that was going to be incredibly high or incredibly low. Yeah, well, it was incredibly high because yeah. it's- I remember that show that you did. Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm making $35, $40 a shift at DHA, and this is two-something a shift. Like, you kidding me? Yeah. And I'm I, rich. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I said, oh, okay. And I, it didn't even dawn on me that I was going into going from market, I don't know, 70 to market one by driving that 30 miles into New York. And it didn't even dawn on me that instead of broadcasting to some counties in New Jersey, I'd suddenly be broadcasting to three states. So when I got there and got my foot in to the New York market and started making money, I could leave my other things to the side that I was doing to hustle for money and said, oh, I'm going to chase this radio thing. And that's how it stayed. You uh, you obviously have relationships, and I'm sure I could only imagine if we could read your mind the things that you are uh, information that you are privy to that you, you know you're not always at liberty to to speak to yeah. at least fully. Has there been a time that you have crossed the line where you divulged something that you later wished you hadn't divulged, or, or, or said something you thought was okay that the artist turns out was not okay with you saying? Oh yeah. That for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that for sure. I, I am somebody, I am very, very adamant, and, and people, artists should know by now, and most of them do, that if you tell me something is off the record, it's off the record. Mm -hmm. I don't share it. I would never say it on the air. But sometimes it can be hard to discern what they people want out and what they don't, because we're also in a world where it's so... It's so competitive. People are trying so hard to get the word out about what they're doing because it's so saturated. That, wait wait a minute. You didn't want to promote that, but you didn't want to talk about that. You got a lot of guys that are in multiple bands at the same time. Wait, I didn't know this guy didn't know you were in that band and working there. So wow. there's a lot of that that goes on. But a lot of times, my biggest problem actually that I find that happens is being taken out of context and talking about things in a hypothetical sense like I do with my audience on the volume show that I do now and having it become clickbait and turned into a headline that I said it was going to happen as opposed mm. to having a, yeah. a dialogue with the, the audience. It just happened to me recently with Rush and it became a huge issue around the world. It became news that I said Rush were reforming and Getty and Alex were going to do a band together. And it became news all over the world, literally. I, what what really happened was a, a caller, a, a listener, I was doing a live broadcast, asked me what I would like to see happen. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I think it would be cool if Getty and Alex did music again together. They could call it Lee Lifeson. It would be cool. Literally, the headlines go out. One website, Eddie Trunk says Lee Lifeson band coming, and it becomes news around the world. It didn't right. stop for three days. Well, this is the enormous power that you wield. And th this is not uh, limited to your show or uh, your audience. It is amazing. People have a lot of trouble with hypotheticals. Yeah, when, and, and taking out of context, and everybody's looking for the clickbait, and everybody's looking to be first, and they turn it into something it's not. And and it is, it is an issue uh, driven a lot, I think, by social media. Speaking of social media, I was just going through your Twitter to see what... Uh, what topics are current in, in your life, in your world at the moment. I, I gather you are very excited for Judas Priest to be nominated for the for the Rock Hall. Mm. Well, excited that they're nominated, but disgusted that they were snubbed for 19 years and not, not even the conversation for 19 years. Well, okay, I've been banging this drum here for a long time. I talked to Ann Wilson about it. I it is what it is now, but I'm actually, for lack of a better word, a little disappointed in the rock community that they have even embraced the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it's not some there. It's not the rock and roll writers of the world. It's 
it's Jan Wenner and his little Rolling Stone party. Sure. And it's not surprising at all because Jan had a very clear idea of what was cool and what wasn't and who he wanted to go do cocaine with and who he didn't want to do cocaine with. And now and Judas Priest were the the uh, the exact opposite of what he had. He actually had a very like relative to metal, a very like blue blooded idea of what rock and roll ought to be. It ought to be poetic and artistic. And I'm not saying that metal is not those things, but the metal culture political. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. More artsy, more literate and. It's too late now. I don't expect anybody other than the Sex Pistols. I respect that they stayed true to form and did the Sex Pistol thing. I don't expect anybody to refuse it because that cat is well out of the bag. Right. But I, I wish I wish a long time ago people had said, fuck your rock hall. We're going to make a real one. Yeah, I agree. I've said that too. But everybody eventually does come around and cave. Most do to some degree when push comes to shove. And we've seen it happen, like you said, with the exception of maybe the Sex Pistols. Axl Rose didn't fall for it. He knew it was a play to get them to reunite. He didn't go. Yeah, you know, I think I think you know Van Halen didn't go. Eddie and Alex when Van Halen went in. So there are examples of people sitting it out for one reason or the other. I don't know how much of that is a slight to the hall versus whatever the dynamic was and the, the people being inducted or the band being inducted at the time. But it, it is true. People people have often said to me because I've made the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which by the way I'm now a voter for. I do vote, but I've Good. made I've made it such a a soapbox issue for me on radio and tv for so long people would always say well why do you even give it the time of day why do you care what we we shouldn't even care and that well i get that but the bottom line is like it or not it is the mainstream benchmark by which these guys get in there are a lot of other award shows and hall of fames but let's be honest most of them are forgotten the day after they happen there's not a museum it's not a big foundation the rock and roll hall of fame like it or not is the thing and most of these artists will tell you that they feel like oh who gives a shit we're never gonna but then they get the call and they're like yeah it's pretty cool yeah we should go yeah i want to stand on that stage and look and watch paul mccartney looking up at me you know it's a it's a big moment for them so I get it, and I just want to see them do it, get it done right. But the big misconception to me about the Rock and Roll, rock and roll Hall of Fame is people think that you get in and it's this career-changing thing. Mm. Like all of a sudden, if you if you draw 1,000 people a night on the road, you get in the Hall of Fame. You're like, wow, there's going to be 5,000 people a night. Your, your guarantees are going to go up. It literally does nothing to these artists' careers no, after they go in. It doesn't move the needle at all. It doesn't, doesn't help them sell records. It doesn't. Uh, it's extremely marginal. If you were, if you're a theater or a club act, and you're in the, and then you get inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you're still a theater or club act after that induction. It doesn't. I've never seen one example of it having a a a real tangible, long lasting spike. That is, yeah, surprising. And uh, I don't follow uh, concert attendance all that closely. You're obviously much more uh, in that world. But I would assume that it gives you a fresh round of, of relevance and, you know, front of the mind for people. And maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. it's just well, a TV in, show on the You're in the one. TV show and it, it's on HBO and you, people see you on the TV show if you have HBO. And they hear, you, they hear the ra- radio talk about it when you're on the ballot like I did today mm-hmm. on my show. And, yeah, there's that. There's a, an awareness. But... It doesn't have any sort of real long-lasting impact. Who else is uh, nominated this year? Well, in my world, the bands of note would be Priest, 
Bon Jovi, second mm-hmm. time on the ballot, mm-hmm. and Rage Against the Machine, first time eligible, first time on the ballot, and I think they'll go right through because Absolutely, they check every box for the Rolling Stone world. And- they do, except for the fact that this isn't going to be a problem. You're right. They're going to go right through, and the, the Hall will be happy to have them. Did they make three albums? Something like that. It's wild. First time eligible, boom, they're going to go. Yeah. Moody Blues, who were snubbed for like 28 years, are finally on the ballot. Um, I'm trying to think who else off the top of my head. But it's uh, the Cars, who have come up a few times, they're finally on there. Yeah, that makes sense. And Radiohead is on there for the first time. Oh, okay. So it's it's a quite the eclectic mix, yeah. I would, as you would expect. Sounds and there's, like a good mix. There's some of those that you know, LL Cool J, and then there's stuff in the rap hip hop world that's on there. So it's always going to be that was just a weird. I, I yeah I I can understand why. I assume it was a cynical thing that Rolling Stone wanted to, or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame wanted to sort of get corner the market on music history, not right. just rock history. But it's always just going to be a weird, weird. Thing when Paul McCartney's looking up at Grandmaster Flash, like who the fuck is Grandmaster Flash? <laughs> uh, speaking of rock inductees, what is actually up with Steve Perry of Journey? Like, what is I don't I, I kind of know little bits and pieces of the story. Uh, I've heard a lot of different things. Is his voice screwed up? Is he? I've heard that he is um, uh, afraid of being in the spotlight because of some weird fan interactions. Like, if he wanted to go play with Journey, could he do that? You know, it's funny you ask me that now. I just here in L.A. the other day was at a party or a function. I forget what it was. And somebody said to me, introduced me to somebody and said, that guy is Steve Perry's neighbor. And I said, really? He said, yeah, he literally lives next to Steve Perry. Like he sees him every day, talks to him and everything. He said, so I went up to the guy and we were talking. I said, so what's the deal? Right. Like kind of like what you just said. <laughs> I said, "What? What's the deal? Can he not sing anymore? Can he? He doesn't want what? What's he? he goes? Honestly, he just doesn't want to do it. He just doesn't want to do it. He doesn't have the desire to be in that world anymore. He just he just says he just doesn't feel it. He doesn't want to do it. See." I have to take people at their word, obviously. I have a weird experience with Steve Perry myself at SiriusXM's old facility. I'm sure you visited us at some point or another at Swing House. No, little... I've I've only ever been here. Okay. So it was a yeah. little it was cool. It was, you know, we had like leaky ceiling and stuff. It was a yeah. rehearsal studio and I'd be there all day and Will Pendarvis, my boss, who, you know, would be there and we'd see a guy pulling out of the driveway and he looks so much like Steve Perry that we started calling him Steve Perry. <laughs> like, oh, can you move? I think that's Steve Perry's car. We need to move to get our car out. And then like after a couple of weeks of this, I come in one day and Will goes, guess who I was talking to last night? And he said, Steve Perry. And I said, oh, yeah. Who is that guy? And he goes. It's Steve Perry. That's actually <laughs> it's been Steve Perry this it's entire always time. Been. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know what the hell he was doing hanging around there, and he had a very like low profile car, and I, he had the most crushing handshake I have ever encountered in my entire life. Mm. Didn't seem like a guy who had anything to prove. Maybe was just maybe didn't know his because usually that's what that is. But he didn't seem yeah, it right. didn't seem that way. He was very humble and happy to talk about stuff and I remember I shook his hand at the beginning of the conversation after we established who he was spent the entire conversation trying to get my hand to recover and then he's like okay nice to meet you and did it to me a second time yeah but okay he just doesn't you know he wants to that's be- what I was told I don't know if that's true I don't know if that's just what he's telling his neighbor I don't right, know. right okay he's Greta Garbo he wants to be left alone yeah. except that he pops up without telling anybody when they get their uh their uh their walk of fame star 
I'm pretty sure he showed up well, in the Rock band. and Roll Hall of Fame. No, no, like no, the, the Walk, of, walk fame? of Fame. Oh, yeah, when they, got, when they got yeah. a start up on Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, okay. He turned up, and I reading between the lines seemed like kind of the band felt upstaged. If he wanted to be there, mm. he should have said he's going to be there, but he wanted to pop out of a car and be like, hey, everybody, here I am. Right. He attended the Rock Hall thing, and I saw there was a very nice moment backstage where he embraced the singer guy they've yeah, had all these years. And Arnell, the current singer, dropped to a knee like he was meeting the Pope. Did you see that photo? And I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah. Arnell's just like, this is what I've always oh, yeah, wanted, was him yeah. to be him to approve of me, and you, you could be forgiven for assuming that Steve Perry thought the worst of you, and yeah. so whatever. I'm sure Steve Perry, I would imagine, his emotions and attitudes have gone through a bunch of permutations over the years, but it was nice that in that moment he just said, for sure. it's great what you've been doing. But if you don't want it, what do you even... I, I I I don't know. Maybe, I guess you don't know any more than well, I do. Well, I think I think in big moments like that, big big benchmark recognitions of your career, star on the Walk of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sure, you're going to come and and accept the award and make sure you remind people that the role you played in it and 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 revel in it for a second. I'm sure that that's the case. But there's a big difference between doing that and and being in the rock game and having to. Uh, be out there and working it and it, the, the music business now here's a problem a lot of guys who have sat out the music business for a while are afraid to get back into it because they don't know what it is anymore and they don't know what they need to do to make it work and it's a scary world because the business is so different if you've sat on the sideline for 10 15 certainly 20 years you're you're coming back into something that has really no resemblance of what you used to be in in terms of how the music industry works. And that's very intimidating to some guys and they don't want to put that work in and they don't want to deal with it. In the in the 80s hard rock world, I am asked almost daily about White Lion's guitarist Vito Brada because he was a guitar hero in the in the late 80s. I have a great history with that band and friendship with all those guys. And there's been every rumor about this guy imaginable. He was working in a deli and chopped his fingers off on the slicer. That sounds, He's, sounds I mean, likely. In the pre-internet age, we really could whip up some pretty good rumors. Yes. So there's everyone in the world out there. And I get asked about it, and it's really simple. And people just can't accept this. But this, in Vito's case, because I know him, is the truth. He just does He's not into it anymore. He's just his heart isn't into it anymore. He made his mark. Mm -hmm. He sold his records. He knows if he comes back, he's going to be doing a van or a bus tour, playing clubs on Tuesday nights at eleven o'clock, especially after the initial pop wears off. And he's just he's not into it anymore. He doesn't want to go do it. It's not in his heart. As much as I'm a fan of some of these guys, if it's really not in your heart and you're going to go through the motions, I'd prefer you stay home. What is Vito? I'm assuming you're in some kind of contact with him. What is yeah. his relationship with the guitar? Okay, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to be a rock star. He doesn't want to be in White Line. He doesn't want to tour. Does he? Does he play guitar? I think he plays a little bit from time to time, uh -huh. but I don't. I don't know how much. I don't talk to him all the time, sure. but I am in touch with him, and I think he plays a little bit from time to time. But he's very happy. He he still lives in the same house. He grew up in with his mom, and he takes care of his brother, who uh, is is deaf. And uh, I, I mean, he's a, he's a good, he's just a family guy. He want he likes to be home with his family and takes care, you know, takes care of him. I'm assuming now. Now the other part of this is you have to have your finances in order in order to pull that move off. There's a lot of guys who get back into music because they need to. They need to make money, of course, and and they 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 got to pound it in every way. 
But if you've take if you've saved your money, you have a decent deal where you've got decent royalties still coming in. You you don't have to. People ask me all the time about Billy Squire. Why doesn't Billy Squire do stuff? Where's Billy Squire? Billy Squire is the number one sampled rock artist in hip hop history. Jay Z, Eminem have all sampled his songs. He owns his songs. He has made more money not doing anything in the last twenty years than he made during all his years of recording. So he had the last laugh with the stroke. Stroke, all that stuff, yeah. Yeah. 99 Problems by Jay-Z is the stroke. Right, right, right. You know, I'm old enough and wise enough and mature enough now that I I can really see, I I love, hair metal is is my thing, and I I love meeting those guys, and you just meet some guys who, uh, I talked to, I don't know anything about Tracy Guns from L.A. Guns, but I, I talked to him not that long ago, and I just had the feeling that I was talking to a guy who's in a really good place in his life. And I've mm-hmm. talked to other guys from other bands where I'm just like, wow, you're a you're a casualty of this yep. thing, you know? And I had a conversation I'll never forget one time with a guy named Jonathan Daniel, who uh, he was the bassist and songwriter in a band called Candy, who were like a power mm-hmm. pop band. Gilby Clark was in that Gilby band. Gilby Clark was also in yeah. that band. And they made a really, really great album that only ever came out on vinyl. Um, I, I love it. It's more like Raspberry's It's on leaning. Polygram, I think. I yeah. don't know if, what it was on, but it's yeah. called Whatever Happened to Fun. And yep. then he formed a band called Electric Angels, who got signed to maybe Geffen or Atlantic. Atlantic, that's yeah. exactly right. Nothing happened with them. And he went away. And then he started managing people, and he was managing uh, uh, Fallout Boy and Panic at the Disco, and did very, very, very well for himself. And we got to talking one time, and he had just been the night before to go see a guy from one of these hair metal bands do an acoustic show um, up on the Strip. And he said, the looking back, he feels like the '80s were a great time to be. And he described himself as a, a failed in a failed metal band because he's like, I was at all the same parties. I slept with all the same women. I don't know if he's married or whatever. I had all the same fun that the big guys had. But since it never really took off, I never lost touch with reality. And when that era ended, I was able to move on with my life. And a Mm. lot of those guys are kind of, you know, stuck in in a holding pattern forever because of those 18 months, three years of of, uh, glory. So I'm very happy if Vito Brada doesn't want to be White Lion anymore and he's happy doing what he's doing. Whether he's got his fingers or not, I, I think that's great. <laughs> he does. He does indeed have his fingers. You, you, you do. You do have guys that are in. The, there's guys that I feel for that are out there and they're really making no money, playing to no people. A lot of those bands, unfortunately, don't have a real draw anymore. And I, you know, you use the term hair metal. I personally don't use it because I feel it's a derogatory term. So I and it was. That's what it was born out of. And mm-hmm. I know that there's some people that have used it as a rally cry and embrace it, and that's their prerogative. Uh, I. I feel that if you want these bands to have any chance at progressing and being taken seriously, then using that term is knocks them back down to what people made fun of them for and why they hit such a hard wall. And I know that I do a show on a channel called Hair Nation, Mm -hmm. but I but on this on Sirius XM as well. But I also, when I'm on, that's where Trunk Nation came from because I won't use it. because, And I know for a fact there are bands that won't come on that channel because of the name of it. I know. So I think that it's um, everybody has the right to do what they want with it. But I think it's often forgotten that that name was derived to mean these bands were style over substance. Right. And that they were a joke. It was it was come up. The people who came up with that were people who to, to slam on those bands and also the the grunge bands that came around at the time who replaced them. But I think when you look back on it, history will show that 
like any era of music, there was good and there was bad. Of course, of course. I think you would also find, and I'm I'm, I'm drawing a blank on a, a good example. You and I both did, I believe, a little bit of drinking last night um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. in our respective quarters. There are lots of nicknames that stick around that that for in yeah. all walks of life that were initially derogatory and then they stuck. I I would be hard pressed to think of a better way to because if you're not going to call it hair metal, you're going to call it glam metal, and that's going to get even more dicey. And that's less. Skid Row was not a glam metal band yeah, I just at all. Call it eighties. Hard rock. That, that that's that's fair enough. I yeah. say it with all affection. I I, I yeah, some do. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's yeah. totally cool. I like some bands that are straight up hair farmers. So <laughs> that's that's just on me. Speaking of Skid Row, um, I have who's your wait wait who's your yeah. ultimate band of that genre then? Oh, you boy. said Motley, but is there oh, a deep go- one that a lot of people don't know that you would There's say? There's all deep ones that people... I really, really love a lot of bands that were the last generation that was up on the strip that didn't even get record deals. Oh, okay. I will listen to Big Bang Babies, Anna Black, Glamour Punks. I recently went and saw Blackboard Jungle do their annual reunion show. See, if they didn't have record deals, I wouldn't have known them. Yeah. Because I was not, I'm an East Coast guy, so I wouldn't I, have known I, I listened to demo tapes that I had on cassette that I bumped up to MP3s. Wow, okay. Yeah, I don't ask me why, just like the weirder and more obscure and, and, and uh, less successful it was. The, okay. The, the more I really respond to it. You know, so like Vane? I love Vane. No Respect's a great record. Oh, my God, and a great song. Um, and I I was, I went with a friend to the Hair Nation Festival that you were at that you announced, and I made it very clear to him. He's a big, he wrote a book. He was in a, a metal band when he was a teenager called uh, Mom, Have You Seen My Leather Pants? <laughs> so we sh- we have a lot of things in common, and I made it very clear to him that we needed to make it there for Vane, and, yeah. and, and he dilly-dallied a little bit and we had words on the way down <laughs> hard we, to get there that early i get it we but. managed to make it though to for yeah I, yeah vane's a great example and, yeah. and, and a great band i thought davey sounded great um but uh going back to we we're talking about skid row a minute ago i have long maintained and i will always maintain everybody i guess the bands that were big when they were a certain age like we say you put on a certain pedestal but i truly objectively believe sebastian bach was the greatest heavy metal singer in his prime who who ever was like if it's not Sebastian Bach, who the heck brought more to the table in terms of, and even but not even talking about his charisma and his look and everything like that, just the power, the tone, the versatility. I feel like he, I, I, I don't, if he's number one in my book, and I don't know who I think is number two. You can get into guys like Ozzy and all that who are completely different. No, and I wouldn't say Ozzy as far as quality of singers, but I mean you you got guys like. Bruce Dickinson and Rob Halford and Ronnie mm-hmm. James Dio, which mm-hmm. are very much considered the you know the, the sort of like the holy trinity. There, um, I certainly think from the '80s perspective, yeah, I mean Baz was the total package, right, in all ways and vocally. I, Skid Row, you'll get no argument from me with Skid Row because I grew up with those guys, being Jersey guys. Mm-hmm. And knew them before they even signed. I knew them before Sebastian was their singer. I used to go see him with a different singer. Right, I heard about that guy. Uh, the guy's name Matt Fallon was mm-hmm. his name, who actually was also in Anthrax. Oh, I didn't early know that. on. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, that's a those couple bad mo- let lose lose the gig in Anthrax, and they go on to become pretty big. And yeah, lose the gig in Skid Row, and they go on to be pretty big. I don't it's know. It's like if Pete Best was also in the Stones. Yeah, I don't know if he was booted or what went on, but yeah. I just know that I saw him. That there was a version of that band before Sebastian, but but yeah, I mean, I I would agree with you that Sebastian, uh, vocally, if you listen to, 
It's weird, man, because my favorite Skid Row record is the least well-known of the three he did, and that's Subhuman Race. I'd have to go give that another I, I mean, it's the heaviest record yes. by far. It's they were moving in that direction. It's yeah. out metal record. I love that record. I go in reverse order. I, I mean, my favorite three records are the three going back. Mm-hmm. Subhuman, Slave, first album. Nothing against the first record. It's got the hits, and I get all that. But, but to me... The, the, in that order, those are those are my records from that band, and I love that band. Of the band that came from the eight, the bands that came from the eighties, Skids and Tesla are probably my two favorites. Okay, all right. I loved Tesla because to me, Tesla when they came out, they got lumped into that whole sort of quote unquote hair scene, but they really were never about that. They were always a jeans and t shirt hard rock band, mm-hmm. dueling guitars. Mm-hmm. I saw the video from Modern Day Cowboy come on. I was like, wow, this is cool. I mean this is like a band just coming out wearing T shirts and trading off guitar licks and this is this is cool. Yeah. And to this day I think they're an amazing band. I love their records. Right. I, I interviewed them pretty recently and uh it's still just this thing around them is they were in hair metal but not of it. And it's a weird thing because I their their fame the problem is that their fame did not really transcend the hair metal community that I was really aware right, of. Right, that's true. So they they were not a hair metal band, but they appealed almost primarily to hair metal fans. So that's how you kind of end up in a scene you don't maybe totally belong in. Yeah, I could see that. I I mean, I think they have uh, they've actually done really well recently. Mm-hmm. Tesla, all this stuff with Def Leppard, mm-hmm. and they're starting to kind of get a little bit of a different coat of paint on them yes. lately as a sort of elder statesman's classic rock band from the '80s. So they've managed their career very well, and I, I think it's interesting where they're headed. You posted video on your Twitter of uh, Steven Adler playing You Could Be Mine, mm-hmm. which is fun yeah, and funny and bittersweet in, in a lot of ways. And looked to be like he could handle those drum parts just fine. Yeah, I don't understand why this Guns N' Roses quote-unquote reunion... I understand why Steven Adler cannot be the touring drummer in the corporation that is the Guns N' Roses reunion. But like at some point, doesn't he have to get the shot to be on stage with those guys well he did he's done a few songs you know that right no i don't know that oh yeah oh Uh, thank god he's gone up okay he's he's gone up he he did i don't know maybe two or two songs four three four times oh okay in the history of this reunion tour all right that's news to me and frankly that's about right yeah but he he hasn't he his problem was that, and I understand his frustration, is that he wasn't even consistently getting the same amount of songs. He wasn't, for instance, they would do two nights in one city. And they'd have him come up and do two songs night one, but night two not have him come up at all. And he'd be like, why can't I do it the second night? And he just got frustrated with all that. He actually flew to Brazil to play and I think did one or two songs and then flew back. It's, it's a long flight to do one or two songs. Yeah. And I talked to him about it, and he said that even though he was happy to do it and it was provided some closure for him and he had a he was well taken care of by them in terms of you know, they paid him and brought him there and to, to do it, he says, I can't operate like that. And I understand that. You can't be yo-yoed in and out that much. It's crazy. No. So he just said, I got my closure. I'm done. We, I did it. I'm moving on. Well, that's that's good. I'm, I did not know that. I'm very glad to hear that. Because yeah. that, that it, I don't, is it true? Uh, I, I have heard that Izzy sort of thought the band, the band really ended when Stephen was gone. Because it's, I think to the general public, it was lost what a hum- humongous difference it made to the sound of the band when Matt Sorum, who's a much more robotic 
kind of drummer replaced Stephen. To me, that it's, it's never really the same band once Matt Sorum is playing drums. Yeah, there's a there's, well. What Stephen brings is that swing. I mean, he's got mm-hmm. a swing to him. He's got a style to him. That's. But then again, not it's not it wasn't just Matt. The style of music changed so much from yeah. from first album to to the uh, to the Use Your Illusion records. I mean, yeah. I said this many many times, and I even had this conversation with Slash. For me, the only Guns N' Roses record that I truly loved top to bottom is Appetite. Uh, the the other records, the, the Illusion records, there's some certainly some great stuff on it, but there's also just a lot of overblown stuff. It was just it became something totally different. I mean, that first record was a raw street guitar bass drums rock record and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden they morphed into this thing with piano breakdowns and it became a whole different thing yeah i mean of course there's there's amazing songs i'm not saying that for a minute but it's just a very different band that took a huge huge leap direction wise yeah some liked it some didn't i preferred like the gritty dirty street rock band more again being the weird demos on cassette guy i always responded to the the little home demos that they'd made of about i'd say about a third of the songs on the user illusions there were demos for before mm-hmm. appetite for destruction and it's 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 interesting to hear the pre like the live like a suicide axle vocals on top of say the garden and then you hear him do the alice cooper bit and he's doing it as alice cooper like they haven't even released appetite for destruction right. and somewhere he knows where he wants this <laughs> to go for better or for worse right, right. you were at uh book soup the bookstore here in uh, los angeles for the history of metal blade yeah I never thought at the time that we'd be talking coffee table books about, you know, Metal Blade Records, but I'm glad it's yeah, time it's has come. Yeah, it's not a coffee table book. It's a small it's a small little uh, book. It's not like a big, big thing, but it's a very well done book, and it's a cool story. And Brian Slagle, who, went, who owns the company, is a good friend. And I don't have anything to do with the book, and I'm not in the book, but Brian was just trying to put a panel of people together mm-hmm. to, to build some excitement for – uh, the signing that he was doing, and I went down and uh, with a few other people, and we all uh, just came to help Brian. It was a great night, actually, great turnout. Yeah, it, lo- it looked it looked good on your Twitter. Um, going through the roster of Metal Blade, the name that struck me is uh, is King Diamond. I don't know exactly how extensive their relationship was. How have you interacted with King Diamond? Yeah, yeah, we had him on that metal show. Yeah, what's that like? Because he he's one of these guys who, in my mind, is I've always thought of him as the Morrissey of heavy metal. <laughs> Where he's sort of hiding in plain sight. You can ask him a question, he'll give you an answer, but you'll never totally figure out who, who, who really, where, where is the man underneath the man? Yeah, I don't know him that well. I've interviewed him a couple times. We, we had a great conversation with him when we were doing that metal show, and he was a guest. And he's he seems to be a very smart guy. He's very, uh, very well-spoken. He's very passionate. He... he I wasn't quite sure even when I was a kid where he stood with all the devil stuff and is he does he worship Satan is he a Satan? I mean, what 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 what's the deal there and he just told me that he's he's just sort of you know doesn't believe in any religion a lot of it comes from a horror sort of thing but he has seen things and, and th- that have to do with the occult but he's a, he's a very um I found him to be a very smart guy a very well spoken guy and an interesting guy and uh, learning more about his background and stuff. I was never a huge fan, uh, and I mean that with all respect, but for me, with King Diamond and Merciful Fate, 
think his voice is very much an acquired taste. <laughs> yeah, much, like much, it. One more reason why he's the Marcy of metal. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. You like it or you don't. And for me, that sort of singing was is is, is and was tough for me to get into. Yeah. But I respect what he's done. And he's actually, he's become like an elder statesman of metal. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of guys that, the Metallica guys, all these guys love what he did in Merciful Fate. And I he's doing, he does extremely well when he plays and tours now. Good. He headlined a festival in Vegas called Psycho Vegas, or he's one of the headliners recently. He He's putting, I know for a fact, he's being courted by some pretty major managers now to take his le- career to the next level again. I think he just had a kid, and he's like 56. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think there's, and there's he's definitely a record coming, and he is a very, very loved figure in the metal community, and seems like he's got a whole nother whole nother run of uh, of stuff coming. He had a serious health issue. I mean, right. a heart, huge yeah. heart issue. And now I think he's he's kind of making a, another run. Well, Eddie Trunk, you are also a very loved figure in the heavy metal community. Uh, real quick, Thank you. in the time that remains to us, you have a TV project? Yeah, I got a new project that is going to be premiering early next year. It's going to be on Access TV. It's, called, it's going to be called Trunk Fest, believe it or not. And it's going to be me going around to music festivals around the country and covering what goes on at these festivals. It's going to be um, more about what goes on around it than it is going to be sitting and talking to the bands. Shot three episodes so far. It was, uh, we I did Kaboo in San Diego because it's all sorts of music. I did uh, Sturgis Rally in, mm-hmm. in South Dakota. And I just recently did a festival called Louder Than Life in Louisville. And those are the first three. So it's going to be kind of like Trunk Fest at Louder Than Life. Trunk Fest at. And I interview the guys doing the barbecue. I interview the guys making the bourbon. I interview Rob Zombie. I interview uh, George Thorogood, whoever's playing. I'll get a few minutes with them to talk to the fans. So it's more about what go because there's so many music festivals now, and it's such an emerging thing. So it's more about the what goes on around them than it is Hey, I'm on the bus talking with. That'll right. be a small part of it, but yeah. it's more of a road show than anything. So I'm excited about it. It's going to be a little while before people see it because I need to shoot seven more. We want to get 10 done before it rolls out as a series. And and obviously we're in October, festival season slowing down a little bit. But I'm going to do a few more before the end of the year, and then um, it'll premiere. Um, they're talking like early summer of next year on Access TV. Okay, that sounds great. In the meantime, I'll remind everybody, Trunk Nation airs live weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM Channel 106 Volume. Also, you're on FM Radio. you got the podcast and more. Get the info at Eddie Trunk and at eddietrunk.com. And on Hair Nation on Mondays, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern. I love the And show. there's the, the music show, the music talk show that I do there. Thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for being here. That is the show. Thanks for listening. I assume many of you only stuck around to the bitter end for a chance to win a prize. So here it is. The prize is a batch of homemade chocolate chip cookies, personally baked by me. In order to win, be the first person to correctly answer the following trivia question. What kind of radio station did Eddie Trunk do his first broadcasts on? Not asking for a station name or a format. Hint. 
The first shows he did involved a payphone. Remember what I'm talking about? Send the answer to me on Twitter, where I am at Tully. Once again, first correct answer gets the cookies. Winner is limited to continental U.S. Sorry, Canada. I didn't want it to be this way, but if you have a problem, take it up with your bitch-ass post office. Thanks for playing the game, and above all, thanks for listening.